Welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. And this episode is about what's going on in Ukraine. Extremely tragic events, as everyone knows, and everyone's been keeping up to date with what's going on there. We, of course, hadn't accounted for an episode based on Ukraine when we had planned out this season, but given the extent to which refugee law has been impacted by it. We wanted to include an episode dedicated solely to Ukraine, not just focusing upon the routes that Ukrainian refugees can take in order to seek protection in the United Kingdom, but also to touch upon what I think for for practitioners and perhaps for people who don't practice this seems to be a, a glaring disparity in treatment between individuals who quite rightly deserve and are being afforded protection from Ukraine. But when when that's compared to the way in which refugees from other countries have been historically treated, particularly in light of the Nationality and Borders Bill, it wouldn't be right for us not to focus on that too. So with that in mind, we have three esteemed guests for you to listen to, the first of whom is Sarah Dobby from Five Essex Court Chambers. And next we have Kate Higgins, who is the Director of Operations at RefuAid. Finally, we have Hannah Marwood, the head of the Legal Access Team at Care for Calais. We're recording today, Monday the 21st of March, and it's quite an interesting week ahead because tomorrow there will be a further consideration of the Lord's amendments to the Nationality and Borders Bill. The House of Lords has provided a number of amendments that waters down the government's, what we call, the anti-refugee bill and tomorrow they'll they'll decide on whether those amendments will actually be adopted or whether they'll reject them but it's an important week because what we know is that the bill you know really does represent the biggest attack on the refugee protection system that the UK's seen and that's happening in the midst of the Ukraine crisis in the midst of the government suddenly being on the face of it, very caring towards a certain group of refugees. And it's important for us to sort of highlight and remind everyone that actually what the government intends to do for all refugees, and in in, in many ways, including Ukrainian refugees, is something that's of real concern. Now over to our first guest, Sarah Dobby. Today I am joined by Sarah Dobby of Five Essex Court. Sarah, how are you? Good, good. No, thank you so much for having me. Not at all, not at all. For those of you that aren't familiar with Sarah's work, she is dedicated to um, assisting individuals in this area, but you're also, uh, from what I understand, a bit of a scholar when it comes to refugee studies and forced migration. I mean, I've been really lucky to study refugee law from really on in my law degree, which I think was quite unique, and I was able to undertake a thesis on it really early on and then actually go to the Refugee Studies Centre in Oxford, um, which for a student of refugee law was was a long-term dream, um, so very, very fortunate in that regard. Well, it sounds like it's been fast moving for you, but the uh, the immigration landscape is also very fast moving and uh, no more so than what, what's happening in Ukraine now. So you, you were involved in the commissioning of advice dealing with exactly what the situation well was on the ground for individuals who were seeking protection and, and fleeing Ukraine. When was that advice commissioned? So that was commissioned, I mean, shortly after the invasion. So as you say, it's moved so quickly. So late Feb, early March, as it was all changing um, on behalf of the Good Law Project, along with Raza Hussain QC and Alistair McKenzie, to try and kind of pull it all together and keeping one eye on, on Twitter and the Home Office website, seeing what's changing, and then one eye on the horizon about what's coming up with the bill. So very recently, but also things have moved on since then. Yeah, so... Would you be all right to delve into the bits of the advice that, that remain intact and still remain valid, but also the most pertinent bits of what you think have, have changed since? 
Let's begin with the routes, the routes that are that are available for individuals who are fleeing persecution, and we can take it from there. I mean, thinking about the best way to convey this, I think there's a really simple answer, and then there's a quite complicated answer when you get into the details. The simple answer is that there's actually no legal route to seek asylum in the UK. People find it hard to believe, but that's a simple fact. Just breaking that down a little bit, the key points to note are that Ukraine remains on kind of the, the list of countries that require a visa in order to come to the UK. There is no such thing as an asylum-seeking visa or a visa for the purposes of seeking asylum, which means that in order to come to the UK, you have to come by one of the, the normal visa routes or recently one of one of the new schemes. So the important thing to note is that these are bespoke immigration regimes. It's not an asylum regime. So looking at some of those immigration routes, we have what we kind of refer to as the quote-unquote normal routes. Um, and that's what ministers early on were really referring to, uh, apply here to come on a, a study visa, a work visa, um, a visitor's visa, or in one now rather notorious tweeter, come here on a seasonal worker's visa and pick fruit for six months. Within that, there's also that the family migration visas, and there are existing family kind of visa routes, but in the case of Ukraine, that's expanded into this family scheme. In addition, there's also been a new sponsorship kind of homes for Ukraine scheme. So looking at those two new ones in a little bit more detail, the family migration scheme seems simple enough, but has been subject like a lot of this to a lot of change and a lot of controversy. And just before coming on today, I was trying to write out a bit of a, a map of how has the definition of family changed? And that's been hugely important um, and a lot of change, but not fast enough for a lot of people that we saw the definition of, of family kind of start with immediate families, but it excluded so many individuals. So it was your parent if you were a minor, child if they were a minor, your spouse or your partner, and, and really not much more. And over the course of the weeks post-invasion and really in response to a lot of public backlash on it, we've seen that expanded to what they're calling extended family. So your adult parents, and then we have grandparents and adult children. And then we have expansion out to the extended family and immediate family again. Um, so the definition of who is included has been wildly kind of rolling definition. So we see kind of basic bureaucratic hurdles. We see these guidance notes that are changing. I mean, that family um, scheme that I've spoken about, I'm just looking at my notes again. The guidance came out on the 4th of March and has had eight updates since that time. Um, the first guidance about family members came out on the 17th of February and it's had 12 updates since that time. So you've got, I mean, lawyers and barristers and everyone in the field kind of trying to keep up on it, let alone someone that's just crossed the border into Poland or Hungary working out where am I meant to apply? Is my family included? Do I have the documents? Um, in terms of the second scheme, kind of this sponsorship scheme, the Home for Ukraine scheme, I mean, that that does post-date our advice and there's been a lot changing on that, but we see a lot of controversy around the kind of the safeguards in place. So it only opened phase one on, on Friday, I believe, and that was for individuals coming, applying to come here on a name basis. So the sponsor and the person fleeing or kind of coming from Ukraine know each other. Um, we've seen a lot of back and forth on, on vetting, a lot of back and forth on integration support, who's providing what. So I think the the visa routes are something we could go back and forth on for a long time and a lot has been set on them, trying to kind of draw them out, lay them out clearly, and then they're bound to keep changing. But taking a step back, one thing that I think bears repeating and bears emphasising is that this is an immigration scheme. There is no existing or contemplated bespoke 
asylum route or humanitarian route. Again, there is no lawful way for an individual to come from Ukraine to the UK to apply for asylum. You cannot apply for asylum until you're in the UK and you cannot get into the UK without a visa. So that's why we have a system in which there are concessions. So they've made it a little more flexible on existing visas or they've created in some cases these new schemes. Um, but they are by definition about immigration and, and not about asylum. So what happens if an individual has been able to obtain a visa or or, ha- or has turned up sort of at, at the shores of the UK or at port and, and is fleeing Ukraine? Uh, how, how are they treated when compared to their Ukrainian counterparts who have managed to take advantage of the immigration routes? Well, the short answer is very differently to their Ukrainian counterparts who have a visa, but then in exactly the same way as all other vigil- individuals who have sought asylum in this country. The first point is is how they even try to get here, because as I've said, they can't lawfully get here without a visa, so what do they do? If they try to get a train or a plane or a boat over here, the great likelihood is they're just not going to be allowed to board. And that's the result of something called the, the kind of the carrier sanctions regime. And what that is simply, it's a, it's a system or a regime that enables the Secretary of State to fine the train company, the plane company, for allowing someone who needs a visa and doesn't have a visa to board their transport to come here. So often we kind of talk about the externalization of borders. So where the country kind of pushes their border um, mechanisms out further. So here, if you're trying to board a train or a plane in another country and you don't have the visa, you'll be stopped from coming here because otherwise that transport company will face fines from allowing you to do so. So then we see the inevitable happen and people are pushed into the hands of traffickers and smugglers to try and get here. Back of lorries and on the small boats we see crossing the channels um, and the dangers obviously inherent to that. And then if kind of despite despite the walls that have gone up, um, metaphorical and otherwise, you do somehow manage to get here in kind of into the UK without a visa, you find yourself in the same situation as tens, I mean, tens of thousands of people currently in the system. You are liable to detention. You are going to go to the back of what has kind of just come out in the recent figures as an unprecedented backlog in the asylum system, um, including I think it's just over 60,000 individuals who have been waiting over six months for their decision. You won't be able to work for the first year you're here. Uh, You're not eligible for public funds until you are, and I kind of, the term is destitute, or kind of within 14 days of being destitute. So really kind of the the circumstances, the environment you're arriving into is is nothing short of hostile. I mean, that that is the policy, that is the phrase, and that is what these individuals, Ukrainian or otherwise, will face if they manage to arrive. And that segues quite nicely onto the Nationality and Borders Bill and the overall tone of that bill when compared to a lot of the rhetoric that's been coming out of of the mouths of politicians when talking about Ukrainian refugees. Your your advice was really comprehensive in terms of what what the bill seeks to do. And it would be really useful if you could perhaps highlight the the intention and the tone of the bill with specific provisions, but also how that differs from the approach that we have taken to those who are fleeing fleeing for their lives from Ukraine. One, One thing I would mention is that the advice for the Good Law Project, which focuses just on Ukrainian kind of individuals fleeing, um, is somewhat of a continuation, I mean, albeit different from an earlier advice in October on behalf of freedom from torture, um, which was a substantive legal advice on on key provisions of the bill just as they applied to everyone. And in this, in this more recent advice for the Good Law Project, we really focused on on Ukrainian refugees, just to kind of really highlight the hypothetical, the very, the person that you're seeing on your TV and your newspaper every day in the face of actually quite unusual kind of public support for refugees 
what is this bill that is about to be passed and is before Parliament at the moment going to do to that mother and child and father that you see on your TV screen? So in terms of kind of the tone of the bill that you asked about, I mean, the whole thing is about a continuation of what we've seen, not just for the last few months or years, but I mean, really decades of immigration policy. And that is kind of deterrence, um, deterrence and the mechanisms and making the situation such that even if you can arrive, we're going to make it easier to remove you and harder for you to stay, keeping it in those simple terms. And just kind of maybe stringing it together, there's so many aspects of this bill. I mean, it's the borders and nationality bill, so we won't go into all of those aspects. But if this kind of hypothetical Ukrainian tries to come to the UK, they can't travel to the UK directly. Um, We know that there are no direct flights and by necessity, they will have had to have transited through one or more countries. And the bill kind of does, does more of the same and then it does worse in terms of the effect it has. If you try to come across on a small boat because you haven't been able to get a visa and you can't board anything, uh, the powers to push you back and the way in which border force can physically push you back to France will be expanded. If you merely enter, kind of arrive, sorry, in the UK to seek asylum, you will be criminalised and kind of liable to prosecution. Um, that carries a risk of 12 months up to four years imprisonment for the mere act of arriving in this country to seek asylum. Again, if you manage to get through kind of some form of transport, traffickers, boats and get here and you've passed through any of those countries, your claim will be inadmissible. And basically what that means is the the Home Office won't consider it for a kind of a period of time. At the moment, it's not quite clear what period of time, purely on the basis that you're deemed to have kind of passed through these other countries, um, which we assume to be to be safe and for you to have a connection. Again, if you do all of that, you register your claim, you seek asylum into this country, the bill will c- contain a provision that it will enable you to be deported to offshore processing. So they are the families you see coming from Ukraine could be shipped off to unstated, unknown um, territories, third states, I mean, potentially thousands of miles away for offshore processing. And then again, if you get through all of that and you are actually recognised as a refugee, the Ukrainian refugee will only ever be considered under this bill a Group 2 refugee. And what the Group 2 refugee is, is the substandard Tier 2 refugee status. And it means that on the terms of the bill, the Secretary of State can and will discriminate against you in terms of the duration of protection you're given, the type of protection you're given, and a whole range of of fundamental rights underneath um, the Refugee Convention. In terms of your current understanding of the position, is there any prospect of any carve-outs for Ukrainian asylum routes as opposed to just these immigration routes, whether with our statutory regime as it sits currently or if or if the bill is to be passed, or is, or is that something that hasn't really been floated yet? I don't think so. I mean, when pushed on it at all times, I mean, ministers, I mean, MPs, it's always been the same, the same line and that Ukrainians must apply for visas. You have to come by the existing routes. There's no kind of known humanitarian carve-out and the timing of Ukraine has obviously placed the government in a fairly awkward position to say the least in terms of the bill. I mean, we've seen the reporting and it's, I mean, it's nothing short of blatantly racist. And we can see that in terms of the effect of this bill, that people are now shocked about the impact it might have on Ukrainian refugees, but it was always going to have the effect on any refugee who came under it. And now, I mean, for better or worse, that it's it's really highlighting that. And we saw that when it went through the law, the House of Lords very recently, um, and it suffered a number of very serious defeats in terms of the provisions that were amended or just wholly removed. And continual reference was made to to Ukraine, to Ukrainians, and to seeing that on our TVs. Um, and while, I mean, it's, it's personally and professionally very disappointing that it's taken kind of 
war in Europe to draw attention to this, um, it is showing the kind of the very personal effects of what this will do. In terms of carve-outs, there's, there's no mention of it, anything for Ukrainians other than the existing humanitarian immigration routes. In terms of closing off, what more do you think that we can do within the sector and what more do you think that individuals outside of the sector can do to continue applying pressure with regard to the implementation of this bill, not just for Ukrainians, but for those seeking international protection from whatever country it may be? I think one of the things, and it's what you're doing with this podcast, is, I mean, this bill contains kind of tens and tens of provisions and pages and schedules, and it's a wholesale restructuring of what is already a very complex regime and just getting the message out there and really making it simple. I mean, if it's taken multiple lawyers and barristers weeks and weeks to just kind of spell out the effects of this bill, how can we kind of just expect the public to pick it up and know what it's being what is being done in their name i think as a sector we have to campaign behind the kind of the scenes as we do and but we also just have to spell it out to people that this is the effect of the bill on on ukrainians and anyone who might flee from africa the middle east elsewhere in the in the years to come applying pressure in that way just for individuals i mean it's it's engaging with the process i mean your mp's are going to be voting on it this week and it, and it might feel too little too late but actually kind of getting in touch and saying it's your deliberative process and expressing your views on that, that what this does, we know it criminalises asylum seekers. It enables families with children to be put into offshore processing. Um, it makes Ukrainian refugees or anyone who's come via another country a group two, tier two refugee. Um, voice your disagreement with those things. Let's see what happens with the bill. And if, and if the bill is implemented uh, as it is in its current form, then Sarah, I think you and I are going to be quite busy for, for a few years to come. I think we have a lot of work to do for the rest of our careers and beyond, if that's the case. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Listeners, that was Sarah Dobby. So next we have on Kate Higgins, the Director of Operations at RefuAid. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? Hi, good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us, especially when you've been so busy in the re in the in the recent few days. I know you've been and your organization has been out in Poland trying to assist Ukrainian refugees, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we've been doing over the last couple of days. Um so Anna, the co-founder of RefuAid and I went out last week and we only went out for a couple of days, but the the main reason that we wanted to go is because much of the conversation that's been focusing on on supporting those fleeing Ukraine has centered on the UK and what mechanisms we can put in place as individuals and organizations. But what we realized is that nobody was really having that conversation with those who, who were fleeing Ukraine to see kind of if they wanted to come over to the UK, if there was appetite for it, what they knew about it. So we kind of wanted to fill that gap and, and see, you know, talk to the people whose opinions mattered the most. So we went over and we worked with a couple of organizations and individuals over there who are working on the ground um, and supporting individuals and families who have fled Ukraine and are now in Warsaw. We just wanted to understand what, what they were doing and whether people were aware or even interested in coming to the UK. Because as I'm sure most people could probably agree, in the wake of Brexit and with a very sort of toxic media narrative around refugees and asylum seekers in the UK. Britain doesn't exactly hold the top spot for being the most welcoming or compassionate place for those seeking sanctuary. So we didn't even know whether people would actually be interested in coming over. Um, but we also felt that it was important to understand whether people would be willing to travel to the UK, because given the fact that the majority of people fleeing are women and children, people are undoubtedly keen to stay as close to Ukraine as possible in the hopes that they would get reunited with their loved ones. So that was that was the main premise of, of our trip over there. And 
what did transpire from that was that actually not many people were aware of the schemes available to support them to coming to the UK. Um, so those who were aware or were looking at it as an option were just absolutely confused by the process and the system and how to navigate it. But for example, we met we actually met one lady who had she was looking into the Homes for Ukraine scheme. Um, and she had a family member in Scotland, but because she didn't understand how the scheme worked um, and it was very complicated and the application process was very complicated, she actually matched, well, she found someone online she, who offered to host her over in in Newcastle. So she was fully ready to travel to Newcastle, knowing that she wouldn't know anyone there. She wouldn't have any connection. She wouldn't have any kind of community. And when we spoke to her, we were like, why Why don't you want to go to Scotland? And she, she was like, yes, absolutely do want to go to Scotland. And that's where I want to be because that's where I know I have a family member. But she just didn't even know that was a possibility because it hadn't been offered to her. So that's, yeah, that's that's effectively why we were there. And I think it was incredibly useful because there are so many people who who are who would be interested in coming to the UK, but aren't aware of, of what support is available. And we just kind of wanted to start bridging that gap. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a really important thing for refugee organisations to do. And that's, that's amazing you're doing it. But it also, it's consistent with what refugee organisations do in the UK, which is almost plug the gap that the government leaves when it's their failure to get the message out properly. Is that what you found when you were there, that you know, there's, there's not much information being actually put forward by the UK government about their own policies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we went to um, Warsaw train station where people were coming in on trains kind of every hour, loads of people. And the, the station was absolutely packed. And it was very organised chaos in that there were different stands everywhere with people talking to individuals about accommodation, about travel. There were people giving out SIM cards. And it felt like there was quite a, a lot of holistic support there. And there were people from Spain saying, this is how you can come to Spain. These are the documents that you would need. There were people from Portugal and there was nothing nothing to do with the UK. And we spoke to some of the volunteer coordinators who were running the whole thing. And we said, Does any, has anybody asked about the UK? Has anyone been here to talk about how you can travel to the UK? What kind of mechanisms we have in place to bring people over? And, and they just said that they hadn't heard of it at all. And nobody knew that this existed. So it kind of feels like a scheme that's been rushed and put together very, very hastily, but without actually any practical understanding of how to implement it. Can you tell us about some of the people you did meet out there and what they're going through and what they were saying to you? Yeah, so the majority of people that we did meet were were women. A lot of them did have young children. They are, all of the people that, that we met were incredibly resilient, incredibly positive, but you could, they, they were also very traumatized in the fact that they had left family members, a lot of family members back home. And they and they weren't sure where to go or what to do. So so it is very much the case that people would turn up at the at the train stations and have absolutely no idea where to go next, who to speak to, what information they needed. There were hundreds of people there with children, with dogs, with pets, like a lot of elderly people as well. And what we see at Refuge with a lot of our clients is that they they have been through so so much trauma, but it's been over quite a long period of time. Whereas in this particular scenario, it's happened so quickly that people are having to process a lot of trauma in a very, very short space of time. And I think that's something that people are really struggling with. But equally, as I said, incredibly resilient. We, we met four families, all of whom just said, we want to get back into work. We want to support ourselves. We want to be independent again, because they, they've gone from living very kind of middle class lifestyles to all of a sudden having to consider living in someone's spare room 
and having to to live off the state, which is something that none of them ever considered or, or wanted to do. So there's an, a lot of resilience and, and positivity amongst all the all the sadness. And that's, I think, as part of your organisation, that's some of the things you do, right? Um, you, you you focus on getting people back into employment or develop their language skills or or get them back into education where they were used to being educated and then they suddenly lost that. And, and I imagine that you're you're coming across those individuals now seeing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. At RefuAid, our primary focus is to support people with equal access to various different services. So whether that is language, whether that is employment, finance and things like that. And we met whilst we were out there in Warsaw, we met a couple who were both students. So one of them was partway through his medical degree and, and she was doing business studies and what we want to be able to support them with is getting back to their studies and not having to necessarily restart that again or not having to just kind of divert and go down a different route that they don't necessarily want to do but they feel is what they have to do because their situation has changed. And another two women that we met have worked for for years and years and years in the aviation industry. They've got incredible CVs, incredible experience and they speak fluent English and they, they're amazing and they want to go straight back into work because that is what they've known and they've loved for the last 20 30 years so to see someone have that stripped away from them is so difficult and it's it creates part of your identity so it's really important for people to reclaim that as soon as they can and those people that you did come across and that you met and that you've helped in 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 respect of the uk policies have any actually heard from the uk government about their visa application or their their applications to join a sponsor here in the UK? So not yet, unfortunately. We're not sure on the time frame. We don't know how long it will take to get a response. We've been advised that it could be a matter of days, a matter of weeks. All applications that we submitted were submitted over the weekend. So I imagine we're hoping that we'll hear back this week, but but we just don't know. And as I, as I said earlier as well, it is a very laborious process and it is a very difficult one to navigate. I mean, as native speakers, when we were going through the application process, we found it incredibly difficult to understand and it's not clear at all. And it's also not actually available in Ukrainian at the moment. So it, that also doesn't kind of make sense especially when people are having to submit it on their own. So, yeah, we don't know what the situation is with it, but hopefully they'll start coming through soon. Well, I hope so too. Let's move on to another issue, which I think is quite important for both of us, really, having discussed it with you very briefly before we started recording. On your website, you mention as part of your key values the, the sense of unity. You say that you work with all people regardless of nationality, religion, or political affiliation. And I remember reading Refuade's statement of 16th of March, and I, and I, for our listeners, it's, a work, it's well worth a full read in terms of your response to what's going on in U- Ukraine. But I want to read an extract and then discuss it with you. Your statement says that the current outpouring of support from communities across the UK is phenomenal and should be absolutely utilised, but we urgently need this to be extended to all nationalities and all individuals seeking asylum compassion cannot be selective. If we are truly going to lead the way in supporting those who've been displaced by conflict, this needs to apply to everyone. I mean, I love that statement. And it really resonated with how I've been feeling about this conflict. You quite rightly mentioned the concerns and limitations also in relation to the Home Office policies, but in specifically in relation to the idea of compassion not being selective. What do you think about how the government has been, and indeed some of the media, how they've approached this idea of compassion being selective? It's a very, very conflicting situation. And I think a lot of people find themselves in this situation in that 
it is amazing that so many people have offered to open their hearts, their homes, and and the whole country seems to be rallying together, which is amazing. And it is what is needed because obviously what is happening in Ukraine is is horrendous. But at the same time, for us in particular, having worked with so many people from so many different nationalities, so many different backgrounds who have been through some of the worst atrocities that I've ever come across, I just think it almost belittles what they have been through. And I mean, we've noticed a huge discrepancy in the way that people have been treated. Um, you just need to look at the the Afghanistan evacuations to see that. I mean, we currently have thousands of people still trapped in hotels across the country who have limited support, no access to vital services and no idea of when they will be able to leave. And, and it does just beg the question of why. What is the difference? They are both escaping. People from Ukraine and people from Afghanistan are both escaping war, persecution, horrible, awful situations. And they both deserve the same level of compassion. And I think that's what we have found really, really hard to kind of navigate and to understand because it's hard not to, to feel like our current governments and the media, the compassion that's being shown is completely selective. Certain people seem to warrant empathy and support whilst others warrant disregard. And it doesn't make any logical sense. And it's hard to rationalize it because ultimately it does seem to come down to, to discrimination based on the color of people's skin, their country of origin, and even the way that they arrived in the UK. And it's, yeah, it's a very, very challenging situation. And it's, it's not one that I think many people can rationalize or get their heads around. And what the invasion of Ukraine really has demonstrated is that programs and schemes can be put together in a very short period of time, which is phenomenal. It's, it's incredible that we can do this. And it, and it shows the collective willing across the country to help. But where has this been for those fleeing Syria or Afghanistan or Sudan? And not even those fleeing war, anyone fleeing persecution, anyone fleeing horror. We, we just need to extend it to anyone fleeing and requiring sanctuary. And that's, and that's what we're lacking at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's, it's over a number of years, right? I mean, I remember in, back in 2015 when that young Syrian boy, Alan Kurdi, was washed up on the beach not so far from Turkish resort, I remember. And I remember people were obviously upset and really, really shocked by that. But nothing really was done about the way in which refugees are, you know, have to struggle and flee and cross the Mediterranean into Europe. In fact, from then 2015 onwards, arguably, you know, become even more of a fortress Europe in that regard. And then even as recently as November last year, when 27 people drowned in the English Channel, you know, we're talking on the face of it, genuine and strong ref refugee claims, Iraqi Kurds and Afghans and Ethiopians, Iranians, women and children on that boat. And I remember Priti Patel was suggesting that she was dreadfully shocked, uh, but then very quickly moved to reminding us how vulnerable people are put at peril in the hands of criminal gangs. So she very, very quickly switched to this narrative about it being all about criminal gangs and not about the humanity and the, and the, and the, and the actual people involved who had drowned. And before anyone thinks that the difference in treatment is more to do with, quote, legal versus illegal refugees and the routes that they have taken, I think, you know, it's worth reminding people that hundreds of Syrian refugees were accepted under the government's resettlement scheme, right? But massive delays in bringing them to the UK have meant that they have effectively been abandoned. We represent many of those families, some stuck out in limbo, waiting to be resettled, to be told by the government that they are waiting for local authorities to provide accommodation, vulnerable families with sick children. For years they wait, and differences start, and there is no policy for them.
Yeah, I do think that it's something that the media and the, the current government just completely lack is that understanding of the humanity. Because yes, there can be an outpouring of, of solidarity when you see a picture like that of Aileen Kurdi, but then, but then that needs to transpire into something practical and to solutions that will prevent that from ever happening again. And that just has not happened in this country. And I think people see that image and they they get emotional about it rightly so. But then what people, what certain people in our government, I think, lack is the ability to reflect on that and say, well, why would somebody put their child in that situation? What can we do to stop that? And and that's just not a conversation that I think happens enough or at the right level within our government. Yeah. And I think it's important. The narrative is important, right? And it's, it's the narrative that's set by government and and by media. And so when the government appears and again, I'm not thoroughly convinced that they are genuinely compassionate towards Iranian refugees. But let's let's say their appearance is that they are compassionate. And what follows is also really sort of positive media reports about Ukrainian refugees. That has an impact on how the public views refugees in, in general. But of course, when the government in relation to black and brown refugees focus their, them as, as being demonised and, and in fact dehumanised, you then see what happens to them. Yeah, and I think they, they do it in very obvious ways. Ways and they do it in very subtle ways. And I think we should we should obviously be concerned by both because it is kind of infiltrating the dialogue that every everybody has. And it's a it's a very, very dangerous place to be. You touched on the very generous offer of I think the £350 a month for hosting refugees. And you also mentioned, you know, your organization's efforts in terms of refugees in the UK. And it struck me how different it is in terms of refugees in the UK, because we know those waiting for decisions uh, on on support are are effectively on around 35 40 pounds a week and we know from you know our clients that that sort of subsistence is so low i mean we've had clients who are a- unable to afford you know nappies and baby food we have clients who are unable to feed themselves properly and healthily in terms of their children they struggle to 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 make ends meet while they're they're in the uk and then, and you touched on the uh, and the, the point about people being in in really really bad accommodation throughout the UK. How do you feel about the government having extra finances for this new venture, but yet for the for refugees who are already in the UK going through this for m- many many years? I think it just demonstrates a complete lack of of willing to engage with the problem and come up with an actual solution. We've seen so many clients who have been in awful situations, awful accommodation, have been close to destitute, if not destitute. And it does just show that the money is there. It is just the the, the lack of willing that is, is not there. So the, the majority of people who are offering their spare rooms will likely be fairly well off to a certain degree and might not necessarily need the money. And the majority of people who signed up did so prior to knowing that the 350 was available. So the, the majority of people did it out of the goodness of their hearts. And I think the £350 just exemplifies the issue in that the government like to focus on solutions that make them look like they are doing a lot and that they are helping to, to provide a solution. But ultimately, they aren't. They are just, it's all kind of smoke and mirrors. And Kate, today we speak on Monday, the day before the House of Commons is to consider the House of Lords amendments to the Nationality and Borders Bill. So it's quite an important week, isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm pretty despondent about what how the Commons will receive the amendments. What, what are your thoughts on on what's going to happen to this bill? It's a very difficult one. I mean, in its current form, the the Borders Bill effectively seeks to criminalise 
anyone seeking asylum in the UK without actually providing a safe or legal alternative. And I mean, there's a whole host of issues with that, not even just on the human level, but also it violates international human rights law and and the Refugee Convention. But it does also feed into the very dangerous narrative of the the good refugee or the the good immigrant, which I, I just think is incredibly dangerous territory and it is something that our media like to pick up on um, and you can see it at the moment as we've discussed and to help to try and hold people accountable for the way in which they arrive in the UK if they have no other viable alternative is is just not possible and we see so many people who have survived some of the worst atrocities and on a very human level it's impossible not to envision yourself making those exact same choices as they have if you were in the same situation and I think some of the motives behind the borders bill potentially make a little bit of sense. So for example, we can all agree that people smuggling is dangerous and an abhorrent kind of way of helping people in inverted commas. But although it although the borders bill is very much presented as a way of creating a solution to that problem, it will actually just do the complete opposite. So the harder that we make it for people to come to the UK, the more risks people will have to take. And they will continue taking those risks because there, there are reasons that people are coming to the UK. They're not just doing it for the sake of it. So what we really need is a government and a borders bill that kind of reflects this and represents compassion and dignity and and in its current form the borders bill just does the complete opposite of that that was kate higgins director of operations at refuade so we have hannah marwood with us today and um, from care for calais she is head of the legal access team hannah thank you so much for joining us could you start maybe by telling us a bit about the work that you do for care for calais Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. So as you just said, I run the legal access team at Care for Calais, which is a team of volunteers. They're all absolutely amazing, actually. Um, And we work to link asylum seekers in the UK with legal representation. And for any of our listeners who don't know really much about Calais, would you mind explaining what's happening in Calais and the kind of conditions that are there that you've observed? The conditions there are fairly awful. The wind comes off the sea there and the people there live outside. They sleep outside in tents and small camps. They're treated incredibly badly. We we've been there distributing aid for a number of years now and we have to we have to give out food. There's no food provided for people. There's currently a food ban as well in certain areas of Calais, so it's illegal to give out food to people that are hungry. And they're also quite regularly evicted from their sort of tents and camps by the police force there so the police will come there's reports there's quite a lot of reports of violence on behalf of the police um they will take their tents their sleeping bags make life as difficult as possible for people really and have care for calais been working with people from ukraine who have fled the conflict yeah inevitably um calais is one of those points where whenever Whenever something bad happens in the world, the effects are seen in Calais a couple of weeks later. So we have we have met Ukrainian refugees there who have come to Calais in an attempt to, to come to the UK, whether that's to join family or, or otherwise. So yeah, there, there's been a number of Ukrainian refugees that have come to Calais. And with the visa options that are available to Ukrainians in particular, have you noticed through your work any difficulties that you, those from Ukraine are facing with proceeding with those applications? Yeah, visas are inherently not suitable for, for refugees, you know. Um, they require documents, they require a heavy application process where you need to know a lot of facts. 
Um, people fleeing war don't necessarily have the time to gather any documents like that. One really good example is a lady that I spoke to yesterday um, who's an Ukrainian refugee and her, her passport was with the consulate in Kiev for renewal. So she obviously wasn't able to pick up her passport before fleeing. She's made an application to come join her family member in the UK and that should have been processed according to the email that she received within three days but now we're a week later and she hasn't heard anything so we're not sure if that that's what's holding it up um if she needs to provide any further explanation but it is it is quite limiting for ukrainian refugees yes where are ukrainian refugees living in calais are they finding the conditions very difficult themselves as well not as much as what we've seen for the past few years, and that's particularly because the, the Ukrainian refugees are being accommodated in a youth hostel in Calais, um, so they're able to, to stay there for free and be accommodated. So they've got a roof over their heads, they're warm and safe while their location to come to the UK is, is ongoing. Obviously, Care for Calais has been working Calais for, you said, since 2016. Have you noticed in particular any differences in treatment between the migrants from fleeing other conflict zones that Care for Calais have worked with directly compared to the treatment by the French authorities or kind of local council in Calais towards Ukrainian refugees? Yeah, the, the difference in, in treatment is, is huge. Like, if you think about what's right now in Calais, there, there's Ukrainian refugees who are in a hostel with a place to sleep and they're warm. And then down the road, there is refugees fleeing the exact same thing who are sleeping in tents or, or under boxes, under bridges, who might have had their sleeping bags taken off them the night before by the police force. So the difference is really, really stark. It's quite upsetting to see. It's obviously positive that the authorities are looking after the Ukrainian refugees in this way, but it is something that should be happening for all people who are fleeing conflicts and persecution. I wonder if Care for Calais have observed any differences in those who are fleeing Ukraine who have Ukrainian passports versus who don't have Ukrainian passports, i.e. aren't Ukrainian nationals but have lived in Ukraine and fled the conflict just like Ukrainian nationals themselves. Yeah, this is something we've definitely seen. The visa requirement is that you have to be a Ukrainian national to be able to apply for it, which is extremely restrictive. You don't need to have a passport for a country to be able to call it your home so we're, we're supporting a number of people who Ukraine is their home an example of that is, is a Nigerian man who has lived in Ukraine for 12 years he has permanent residency and actually was just granted citizenship in Ukraine but did not have time to pick up his passport it was granted in February so just last month so before just before the conflict broke out and he had come to Calais got a sister in the UK that he wants to try and reunite with he's actually also got a nine-year-old daughter with a, a Ukrainian ex-partner they are in Poland and he hasn't had any contact with them since the war broke out because they they fled first so he's desperate to try and join his sister in the UK just to have some sort of family connection he's he considers himself to be Ukrainian. Um, he's lived there for so long and he hasn't been back to Nigeria in that time. And he, he's fled alongside all of the people that he knows, whether they be Ukrainian or not. He's feeling the exact same thing. So there's a, there's a huge disparity between those who hold Ukrainian citizenship and those that don't, but who, who call Ukraine their home. We're, we're also supporting people who had refugee status in Ukraine. So they've 
been forced to flee their homes again. They've lived in Ukraine for six years and a little bit longer, the people that we've um, been speaking with. And they obviously they can't go back to their original country because they've got status in Ukraine. It's been deemed unsafe and they started this new life in Ukraine and thought that it would be safe. But unfortunately, they've had to flee again. Um, one particular couple that we're speaking to is an Iranian couple who fled Iran to Ukraine um, and now have had to flee again. And the only family member they have in Europe is in the UK and have offered offered support and help. But under the current eligibility criteria, they're not eligible for, for the visas. There's a group of non-Ukrainian nationals from Nigeria and Kenya and elsewhere who were actually separated from those with Ukrainian passports. Last week, they were separated as a group. Um, the rest of the Ukrainian nationals were taken to close to Lille, where there's a biometric center and they could do their visa application. But this group of non-Ukrainian nationals were separated and sent to a different hostel in a fairly remote town along the coast from Calais, where they've been left with very little information. They've since been moved again, but they're still separated and lacking any information as to what they can do next. And do they remain not eligible to apply for the same family visa route that Ukrainian nationals are eligible for? Yeah, as of yet, there's been no update to the eligibility. It has You have to be a Ukrainian national. Even the, the secondary scheme, the Home for Ukraine sponsorship scheme, you have to be a Ukrainian national. So this idea of nationality checking people who are fleeing a war is is creating a lot of difficulties for people because every case is individual. You're never going to have everyone fit into the same perfect categories of nationality with this. And have you had any experience of Ukrainian nationals actually having their visas granted yet? Yes. Yeah, a a number of people have actually had their visas granted. We have a a group chat with a lot of people in the hostel and we actually got a nice message this morning that a family had arrived in the UK. Um, They'd just crossed. So that that is positive. It's just taking a long time, though. We're seeing people get quite frustrated. We have, as I said, a a group chat with people and you can sense the frustration. And there's also... A lot of questions about where the correct link is, um, what documents do I need, is this correct, have I said this in the right way, have I submitted this correctly. I think there's there's not a lot of support from the British side, there's just a application and people do that and then wait and see from what I can gather. Um, so I, I think there could definitely be a lot more support afforded because that's what is making people nervous and making people afraid. And has there been any um, home office presence in Calais? I know there were talks of their, them setting up a visa application centre in Calais, but it seems that just hasn't materialised. Has there been any support provided that, that you've witnessed? As far as I'm aware, not something that we have seen, no. Sure. Well, Hannah, thank you very much. That's Hannah Marwood from Care for Calais. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back in two weeks' time. 